This week's podcast is brought to you by Massive. That's spelled M-A-S-V. The fastest way to send and receive massive video files. Send uncompressed dailies, locked pictures, DCPs, and more with Massive. Keep listening to hear how you can receive 100 gigabytes for free towards your next transfer. Good morning, Vietnam! Wake up! Wake up, wake up, wake up! You talking to me? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Hi, ho all you girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. This is your boy Ron Dawson coming at you with another edition of your favorite filmmaking podcast that breaks all the rules, Crossing the 180, part of the Art of the Frame podcast network by Film Tools and Pro Video Coalition. I frequently get into discussions with my girlfriend about how good a cook I am, or rather that I don't do a lot of cooking. And it just, it's never been one of my... Uh, strengths in life like I'm not a bad cook but I'm not the kind of person who's going to create like a four course meal and really dive into all the intricacies of creating a scrumptious dinner or breakfast or something unique uh you know I can make a mean uh, a mean pasta you know I can I can boil up spaghetti like it's nobody's business when I was in college I used to make lasagna from scratch Back in those days, you had to actually buy the pasta shells and then boil them and then cook the meat separately, then mix all the tomato sauce. So I'm pretty good at that. Uh, and then eventually I just graduated to the large frozen lasagnas that you can get from Costco. I say all this because if I were in a situation now where I needed to really cook something uh, stupendous, I would probably go to a site like America's Test Kitchen. It has 1.3 million subscribers and they have... Lots of different videos on recipes, and but also reviews of cooking utensils and equipment and whatnot. And uh, I bring that up because today's guest is uh, an executive producer from America's Test Kitchen. Her name is Meekum Dank. Uh, and this is an interview I've been really looking forward to posting because we get into so much great information based on the years of experience that Meekum has, not just creating digital content, but creating that content and successfully distributing it through various social media channels. At one point, we get into how to approach and tackle TikTok if an older person wants to, say, use that platform as a way of promoting his book. And uh, she gets some great advice. Um, the older person hasn't taken it yet, but the older person is planning to. And I think if you are in the world of digital creation, whether it's digital video or whatnot, but particularly if it's any kind of video production, this is going to be an interview that you're really going to get a lot out of. I have also on the show today uh, my revisit from my co-host, uh, Sapna Gandhi, actress and musician and another multi-hyphenate from We Make Movies. Be sure to stay after the interview for a great post-interview conversation with Sapna. But without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Meekam Dang, executive producer of America's Test Kitchen.
I want to start off by asking you, like one of my go-to start-off questions is, do you remember your first movie memory? Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's a good go-to question. <laughs> you know, my my early memories, I, I moved around quite a bit when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents were, they came to America in 75. They were both... Um, Vietnam War refugees. And I think (laughs) the influence of wanting to make sense of a very different world, um, Mm. you know, escaping something that was really impactful and um, intense, they were, they were constantly being flooded with these images of what it meant to be American, so Mm. to speak. So a lot of my early memories are actually based in the media that my father would watch or have around or listen to. So I feel like the flashes included things like action movies and <laughs> Motown and muscle cars. So very traditionally masculine American imagery, yeah. which is kind of unexpected. No one's ever asked me a question like that before. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, sure. That's interesting um, uh, because you brought up your childhood. And, and another question I, I sometimes start with is what your childhood was like, like, you so you uh, emigrated with your parents, I assume, or you were born I here. I did not. Yes, so I was born here. Okay. Um, but a lot of my early childhood was spent constantly moving, mm-hmm. um, a lot of changing and adapting. My dad decided his background was in um, construction, and he was a general contractor and just beautiful designer. I definitely mm-hmm. get my my artistic spark from from right. him. And he started this process where he was really interested in flipping houses. Mm-hmm. So okay. <laughs> didn't expect that answer. Yeah. So we we kind of just went wherever he was working on, you know, a project. So that's mm-hmm. why from the ages of six until I came to Boston, where I went to school to study film, um, I was constantly moving mostly in the tri-state area. So New York, New Jersey. Yeah. Now that I think about it, you said your dad came over here in 75. Yeah, you don't look old enough to have been. (laughs) (laughs) I am old enough, just for the record. So I just kind of lump everybody in as old as I am. So (laughs) (laughs) yes, I can understand. I can totally understand that. Uh, So your dad was in the real estate. He was like a real estate mogul. (laughs) I'm going to tell him that you, you, you gave him that title. He's going to be very excited. <laughs> That's good to hear. Does he still live in the Jersey area? He does. Yes. My parents yeah. live there now. And, um, you know, they, they've done the whole Airbnb thing. They, oh, cool. They've got a front house and a back house. So he's, he's certainly always been very entrepreneurial um, and industrial. So I've definitely taken a lot of my cues from him. Nice. Uh, would you describe yourself as entrepreneurial? Definitely. Um, how so? Yeah. I, you know, I think for me, that was part of, and I think why I gravitated towards, uh, film and, you know, video and sort of that industry, partly because my parents, um, were maybe not so supportive (laughs) in the (laughs) early days of me latching onto this as a, as a possible career path. Um, and obviously it was so much different back then than it is now, but it was really a a survival mechanism for me Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways a way to make sense and connect um, with the people around me. And so I had always kind of taken this approach where I saw the people around me 
using what they had at their disposal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is actually a, a core tenant of being an entrepreneur, you know, making the most of the resources available to you. And so that's something that I carried with me throughout my creative process, mm-hmm. um, through my professional career, um, and something that I definitely still apply to my more, you know, professional day to day now. Yeah. Um, uh, you said your parents weren't supportive of you taking this path. Why is that? I, I am very grateful for the relationship that we have now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel that my story is a bit of a similar one for, you know, first and second gen kids trying mm-hmm. to find their way in, in, the, in America. And, you know, our parents came here under the pretense of wanting to build a more stable and better, whatever mm-hmm. that looks like to you future. Right. And at, at the time, the creative industry wasn't didn't look like what it does today in terms right. of opportunity and paths and it didn't make as much sense. And so I think for a long time, they really saw my choice to pursue something creative as rebellion or mm. as um, something that wasn't very safe. And it was all about safety, you know, for, mm. for them and their choices in that generation. So the further along I got into my career and the older that mm. I've gotten, we've, we've certainly closed that gap and we're in a much better place. Yeah. Stephanie, you were smiling and nodding your head <laughs> like you could relate. Is that something you relate yes. to? Yes. Yes, I relate very much. Um, but uh, I was going to ask you, actually, um, the resourcefulness that you were sort of describing um, around, uh, you know, filmmaking or content creation. Um, do you feel that growing up with immigrant parents really sort of helps you with that with that resourcefulness? Because I do for myself. Like For the listeners, Stephanie is of Indian descent. Yes. That's why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. I, I could not agree with that more. And I think, you know, we've, we've all heard that term constraints breed, uh, breed creativity. And I, I feel like that's something that I really, really stand by into to this day. And you're used to not having a lot um, in, in those situations. And you're used to being told no, even by your own support system. So right it definitely fosters a drive towards creative problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. I call it immigrant mentality actually, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, it's just, it's sort of um, like, you know, everything has another purpose. You don't throw things away, you know, like um, just sort of thinking outside of the box of, Oh, I have this string. I can use it this way and this way and this way and this way, you know, so it gives a whole new definition to like shoestring budget, for example. Yes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's interesting to hear. Cool. Yeah. And then I was also curious uh, what, um film or tv or what you saw that wanted that you that made you want to get into the industry yes so um for me again i my first medium was really pen and paper um so more traditional fine art and then as i sort of progressed towards uh, my later years in high school i i gravitated towards films and on books, um, reading a lot of Chuck Palahniuk, um, David Fincher mm-hmm. continues to be one of my greatest inspirations to this day. Um, and it was, you know, his his body of work that really inspired me to get into sort of that longer form, mm-hmm. take take a stab at it um, at the very least, and pursue film professionally. Um, watching a lot of documentaries as well. Uh, really grew up on PBS, so I, I ended up working yeah. there out of my my first job out of college, which was wonderful. Wow, um, that's super so, cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very very full circle. But it was a lot of um, just just seeing the world, um, you know, through their eyes, but also realizing that it was a very specific lens as well, um, mm-hmm. which is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Of course, mm-hmm. is there a particular Fincher film that 
that you gravitated towards and, and what was it what was about it that appealed to you or his work yes um so i would say seven probably had the <laughs> the yeah. most uh, impact on me so I, you have a twisted mind yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very very dark shades here <laughs> That's right. um you know for, for me the the sort of also growing up in the backdrop of um, you know, city environments and then and moving as much as I did and that sort of adaptive process of rediscovering your identity every time you you picked up and found yourself in a new situation. Mm. The way that he sort of handled detail um, and the, the execution of subtle things like his composition and eyeline and all the sort of, you know, the geeky stuff that we pay attention to that yeah. nobody else really notices. Um, that to me said something about the level of craft and yeah. the manipulation mm. of time, um, sound design, you know, his early work with them, um, soundtrack and, and Trent Reznor. And it just, all of it kind of felt like, oh, this is a medium in which all of these things that have great influence on me come together in such a neatly produced package, which mm. of course we, we don't see all of that. We see the end product, but yeah. that was sort of the start of it for me on top of the, the characters and sort of that darker side of <laughs> human nature right. that he was exploring. He's notorious for having like a hundred takes for something or whatnot. Right. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because, you know, I've interviewed so many filmmakers over the years and, you know, there are some filmmakers who are like, one or two takes is good. Let's go. And you have like these uber perfectionists like Fincher, like where do you fall and what's your take on the whole hundred takes that sort of Fincher mindset? Is that something you uh, relate with or where do you fall on that, on that spectrum? Yeah, I, I would certainly say that I, I think it's important to study um, folks who operate within those mechanics because mm -hmm. it makes you a better decision maker if you fall on the side of on the fly. So it's sort of this mentality of understanding the rules before you break them. Mm -hmm. I, I've sort of always operated through that, that workflow. For me personally, working specifically in the digital space, you know, speed, volume, mm -hmm. scale, all of those things play a factor in terms right. of having to make decisions quickly and maybe not having time or budget to do 100 takes, right? <laughs> or uh, another aspect that I think has certainly come out in the last year is what is the sort of mental and emotional and creative capacity of your crew? Um, you know, how far and how hard can you push someone given the fact that they are going through a lot. We are all going through a lot as a society. So I err on the side of trusting um, my collaborators and making sure that I can see and feel that they are connecting with the thing that we're trying to do together. So I don't have a hard and fast rule of it has to be X number of takes or it has to be done this way. I, I very much view the relationship and the story and the context of the project mm -hmm. when I'm trying to think about these decisions. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I think that makes sense. And especially like you said, you mentioned you're in the digital realm and I, I'm taking, I'm taking, I assume you guys aren't doing like a hundred takes of, you know, what's eating Dan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you probably get Dan, sick. Dan is a one take wonder. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, again, for those, I'm, I'm referencing the, one of the shows on the America test kiss America's test kitchen, YouTube channel. Um, I was watching one, one that you have on your website, the one of the mushrooms was from a few years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's, it, it's fascinating. So, I mean, the whole America's test kitchen premise 
is what? Like, I was going to ask you what it was, but I just want you to tell me what it is because it seems to be a lot of different things. Like, at some part, testing equipment and to see, like, what's the best kind of purchase to get. But there's also, like, this, like, the video that I saw of Dan, he was talking about the science of mushrooms and whatnot. So it seems like there's a science aspect to it. Um, what's the premise? Yeah, you, you're, you're spot on. Um, right. America's Test Kitchen has been around for quite some time, and it actually has a few different brands under the main umbrella brand. Mm -hmm. But the, the mission of all of the brands is to effectively make you a better home cook. You know, they're there to serve the home cook by discovering process. You know, all of the equipment and recipes are tested upwards of 10,000 times. There's a lot of thorough and detailed research that goes into the products that are offered through the website, through the television show, through the podcast, through the YouTube programming. And I would say that the science is probably the thing that distinguishes it, um, you know, through, throughout the course of the brand's evolution. And so you've got America's Test Kitchen sort of at the top of the umbrella. You've got Cook's Country, Cook's uh, Illustrated. Then we've got a kid's brand. There's also a cooking school. There's the podcast. It's a really multifaceted company. And a lot of that growth, I think, has been fueled by the last year in particular, seeing how much it became an essential part um, of, of everybody's existence and, and well-being. So um, it's a bittersweet thing to say that, you know, we were one of the, the industries that um, actually experienced a lot of growth uh, last year. But I think it also, you know, put into the spotlight how important, you know, food is in terms of connecting people, sustaining people and comforting them and teaching them new things so that they can move forward. So I would say that it is very much about that science and experimentation education, but it really is about serving the home cook and allowing you to become a better home cook, whatever that means for you. No, that's cool. That's cool. I like that. So you describe yourself as a full stack uh, digital creator. Um, what is that exactly? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's funny. I would say it's probably, I, I think I made it up. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, I'm going to give myself. <laughs> Cause I've heard a full stack. Yeah, I, mean, so I had to look that up. I'm like full stack. What a full stack creator was that? And I got a lot of interesting uh, results and I'm really curious. Um, I love that you call yourself that it makes sense to me, but I'd love to hear it from you. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, my, my actual creative career path is a little bit different than I think a lot of my peers who I graduated Emerson with, which I went to study more traditional filmmaking. And at the time, I sort of saw a bit of writing on the wall with these new platforms that are now part of our everyday existence. And I thought, oh, wow, that, that's really interesting. You mean I can just make something and put it out there and people <laughs> can see it and interact with it? I think there's something there. And so I, I, I stepped out of um, the sort of more traditional path and just jumped into a digital startup um, that was focused on creating digital content when, again, that wasn't very pervasive. And from there, I moved into the product side, joining a company um, called Bright Cove that um, they're still around and doing extremely well, but they, uh, you can think of them as a YouTube for businesses. And so they are the distribution platform and deliver delivery services for all of this content across the, the digital sphere. And I never really looked back um, from that sort of transition into tech. 
And that is sort of what exposed me. I was even, <laughs> I was even a scrum master, which is essentially a, a, a project manager within engineering yeah, project teams. Manager, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I use Jira with one of my clients. Yes, so there you go. <laughs> Bugs and tickets. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I really learned about that world and that space and sort of adapted some of that language. And then because I was coming from this entrepreneurial mindset and because I was used to working, you know, as a one person show and with very limited uh, resources, I sort of became this maker across the different areas of production. So I was forced to understand, you know, pre-pro and then actually shoot things myself and edit things myself. And then later on in my career, build the strategy around what it ha what happens to these things after we make them. So that's what I mean when I say full stack. It's very much a, a made up title that I've actually seen on Reddit a couple months ago floating around because job postings are now looking for full stack videographers and people are like who who did this to us we're so mad <laughs> it was me one stop so shop it, <laughs> so, so is it essentially a person who does a lot of different creative things yeah i think yeah in a nutshell I, is that no, I, I feel like that's one interpretation of it and i think within the realm of video it mm -hmm. it means someone who can kind of as you said work across all functions, mm -hmm. whether that's mm -hmm. pre post or production itself. Yeah, I have to ask, uh, do your old Bright Cove friends know that you're on a whiskey <laughs> series? Uh, I haven't spoken to a few of them um, since show business In launched, <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, you know, you know, coming up in, in Bright Cove and Wistia was sort of the they were the the scrappy startup, uh, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, full dis full disclosure, Wistia is one of my clients. So, um, but I th when you mentioned that, I thought that was funny. Um, yeah. So it sounds like you are you consider yourself a digital native um, by you know you sort of grew up in that culture. What advice do you have for people who are not digital natives? self <laughs> uh, in the production world like how do you catch up on the tech like how do you what's the most important thing to factor yeah I, that's a great question sapna i and do we need a tech yes. no god no <laughs> i'm sorry you can make Wrong one answer. <laughs> that is just for work you know just a, a oh, fake username right. just so you can experience the platform because the best way to learn these things is to spend time on them As, and that is especially true of tiktok where so much of the creative is informed by product features um mm -hmm. I, you know i think everything is changing so fast and everybody's competing for the same you know same audiences at every given time and carving out space to actually spend time on the platforms is, is the first thing that I would suggest. And then also taking advantage of all of these companies um, offer, you know, free resources, Creators Academy, Facebook Blueprint, Instagram for Business, TikTok Creators, actually dedicating time to taking advantage of that essentially free course material is how you can, you know, stay plugged into these changing platforms. And then if you really want to go <laughs> the extra mile, I, I do think it's important to actually make things on those platforms if you can. And again, it can be a dummy account, uh, completely divorced from your identity and work, just so you get in the habit of understanding, okay, this is what it's like to actually make something on TikTok versus YouTube. Okay. I, I, I want to workshop. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I'm, I'm just going to pick a random example. Let's say you have 
a 50 something year old black man who has a book that he's written. Again, I'm just picking a random example mm -hmm. here. And he wants to promote that book with TikTok. What would be your recommendation as the kind, and let's say the book is a, is a satirical memoir. It's a satirical comedy about what it means to be black in America. And so there's a lot of commentary on politics. There's commentary on race and religion. And it's very funny, um, but he's 50 something. Like what would be your recommendation for the kind of videos he would make on TikTok as it relates to that book? Yes, yes. Um, well, because it's a satirical memoir, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that there's some some aspect of him that's comfortable with putting his personal story forward. Yes, this person, this make-believe person yes. is very comfortable doing it. I think one of the, the most interesting things about TikTok is that it is anybody's game. And mm. so it is much more about consistency and, again, mm -hmm. utilizing or responding to what's happening in that cultural moment than it is about building your content the way you would on other channels. Hmm. So he could take a look at the hashtags that are trending that may fit thematically with some of the chapters in his book. Hmm. He could deep dive into something called book talk, which is essentially people just reading and reacting to books. <laughs> no way. Yes. Yeah. Go, go check it out. It's, it's a whole new world. Um, oh my gosh. I hear that with music. You know, there's like the two young guys who always like comment that heard Fleetwood Mac for the first time. Oh, I've something. seen those guys. And I've I'm like, what? Like, they're so adorable, but yeah. I don't know if they're real, <laughs> but are. there's something for books. They do that yes. for books too. Wow. Okay. Book talk. It is, right. it is quite the channel and you it, should it tell can... your friend, Ron, you should tell your friend. I will. <laughs> yeah, this, this hypothetical person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, just just showing up on the platform. Read, he's got the book. That's his material. I don't mm. think that he needs to, you know, really just spend so much time and energy. And I think this is a mistake a lot of people make when trying yeah. to take a pass at digital video. If you have that content, how do you translate it instead mm -hmm. of reinventing the wheel? Right, right. So that would be my first suggestion. And then once he has enough videos out there, let's say he does this for a month straight, hmm. he will he will have enough data in terms of what is res re um, resonating with his audience to understand, okay, great. People really loved this chapter about the time, you know, I went on my first date here, whatever, hmm. whatever it is. And then he could make more videos and maybe he could explore drafts of the book that went unwritten or didn't make it into the final cut all that sort of behind the scenes stuff, which people also gravitate towards. And then the third piece of TikTok is that interactive element. So mm. he could find other people who are making content similar to his and duet it or react to it based on material from his book. So right there, there's his whole content plan. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um, you know, it's funny you mentioned about just making it. And because like I recently came across, my girlfriend told me about this no, she didn't tell me about this. I don't remember. Maybe she did tell me about it. I don't remember who told me. All I know, one of the, one of the creators on TikTok is, I think it's like your Korean dad or your favorite Korean dad or something like that. It's a, it's a Korean dad. And he gets like millions of views. And he's like this, you know, this like adorable, probably 40 something year old Korean man with glasses. And he talks like, hi, this is your Korean dad. And he gives like advice or commentary that's like, P it's not even PG, it's like total G rated commentary. <laughs> and it gets millions of views. And, he, and it's 
and it's and TikTok is weird that way because like you'll you'll see these kind of extremes of the types of people you see on there. And I think that speaks a lot to what you were just saying, for sure. Don't yes. underestimate the power of numbers, right? How yeah. many Asian people are there in the world? How many, you know? But I don't even necessarily think he's getting a lot of Asian <laughs> followers. Like, I think there are people who are just fascinated with this really, he's almost like a real life Pixar character, like in the mm. way he talks and the way he acts. And, and I mean, no shame, no shade on him, but he just, um, there's something magnetic about his sweet disposition. If that makes yeah. sense. Very soothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, when it comes to digital content, and, and this is a good, so I get to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. There's a sense, and I'm curious to know how you how you handle it with America's Test Kitchen, because I think because I think you guys do have some kind of presence on a lot of these platforms. There's a sense of just overwhelm, like YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And I know that the smart and strategic way to go about it is like, you don't just take the same thing and put it on each one. Like you have to kind mm -hmm. of craft it to fit the audience for each one of those platforms. So I guess I have a two part question. One, like what's your commentary on just dealing with the overwhelm? And then two, if a person feels like they just don't have time to do it all, is there one platform that you would recommend focus that they focus on? Yeah, really great questions that we're asking ourselves every day. Okay. <laughs> I would say that it really depends on what you're trying to do. Um, for America's Test Kitchen, we are a publisher, not a creator, even though we're taking many, many cues from the creator world and the creator economy, um, in part by sort of the, the vision that I wanted to bring um, to how we think about digital video. We've certainly reached what I would call an overwhelm and a saturation point because the team is so big. Our talent is also, you know, we only have XYZ talent to work with. And when it comes to the actual production, because we're rigorous in our recipe development process or our testing process, it isn't as simple as someone turning on a camera and making the thing. You know, there's all these other things going on behind the scenes around doubles and triples of the of the the food the preparation the ingredients the cleanup and in a covid world that all fell on the shoulders of the talent when we transitioned to filming at home and now that we're moving back into the studio and i think the audience has a different appetite no pun intended they they're they're searching for the more produced stuff right now mm -hmm. so we need to look at the platforms that we're prioritizing based on what we're trying to achieve on YouTube, that's incremental revenue. We know that YouTube isn't an acquisition funnel to drive people to subscribe and buy the digital product. It's getting there, but that's not really how that platform works. The same is true of uh, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Those are all you know, upper funnel in the traditional marketing sense, brand building, audience awareness. So it's about what the end goal is and then choosing the platform and then looking at the resources that we have to actually make the content now that we have a better sense of our TikTok content, super low lift. Anybody can do that. Very minimal support. We've got a social producer who's dedicated to that content full time. But if there's anything that we want to do that's more involved, mid form, perhaps a mini series or episodic, that requires much more support from a production and creative standpoint. So I would say the order of operations is 
yes, it is about crafting content specifically for the platform, but you have to understand why you're going after which platform. And that needs to be your North Star because there's going to be a new platform and a new thing every day. <laughs> yeah. That makes a lot of uh, sense too. Yeah, it does. Um, so how do you find America's test kitchen different and unique uh, from all the other reality programming around cooking and recipe sharing? Yeah, that it's a great question because I think they're in the midst of a transformation, um, to be honest, trying to sort of find their way as a brand. Mm -hmm. the, the, the historical tie to PBS, for example, or being based in education and science and thoroughness and thoughtfulness, that to me is one of the things that sets the brand apart completely. And I would like to see us lean much more heavily into that direction as opposed to always trying to react to what we're seeing. Um, and, you know, in following um, what happened at Condé Nast and with Bon Appetit, I think it was, there was a lot, there was a vacuum there suddenly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then people were sort of expecting us to sort of step in and fill that void. But our, our business models are different. Our content is different. Yeah. Um, I feel like sometimes the digital world and the internet flattens things <laughs> in that, you know, uh, curiosity, questions, nuance, there's not a lot of space for that because we're also busy trying to keep pace mm -hmm. with producing things and getting things to our audience. And so I think ATK's real advantage is leaning more heavily into what has worked for them in the past, but doing a little bit faster. I'm not saying, you know, a, a video a day and go totally YouTuber, but yeah. There is something, and, and actually, as we've worked with more and more collaborators and folks outside of our, our walls, they're constantly telling us how, oh my gosh, I learned how to do this thing from you. This is one of my favorite recipes of that, right? So that heritage and that, that respect and that trust and authority is there, but there's also a lot of learning um, that's being done as they expand outside of their own you know, brand walls and brand zone. So that's, that's to me where I think their success will lie in this sort of video 2.0. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. You mentioned what happened with Condé Nast and Bon Appetit. You know, so I, I started following the whole reply all, um, uh, I don't want to call it a scandal, but <laughs> for, you know, for, for the listeners who may not be as engaged with podcasting in the whole world as, as maybe myself, um, Reply All, which is like one of the most popular podcasts around. They've been around for a long time about things related to the internet and whatnot. They were doing this four-part series on the Bon Appetit show and some issues of internal racism that was happening within the Bon Appetit show and whatnot. And um, they had done one or two parts um, and then some internal shakeup at, um, at Gimlet, which is the company that makes Reply All, came up related to racial issues and things of like that. And some of their podcasters were speaking out and following it. And so um, one, did you follow that? And, and what, one, what was your, what was your take on that? If you have a take on that, because I thought it was, it was, I was kind of disappointed because I heard the first episode and I thought it was the first one or two episodes. Cause I think Replier decided to post the two they had made. And since, um, their producer, Shruti Pinanamini, who was the one who was kind of called out, she and one of the other producers um, was the one who was kind of hosting it. They decided not to post all four. And the mm -hmm. first two were so good. I really wanted to hear the other two. But I was curious to know, you know, 
this is like in your world, like it's digital video related to cooking, it's podcasting. Um, what was your take on all that? Also, you being a woman of color yourself, um, I was curious if you had a take and and what it was. Yeah, you know, I I personally followed the story very very closely. Yeah. Um, and we, I, I led a um, committee within our our DNI efforts called Conscious Content, um, where we were really trying to turn the mirror on ourselves and think about how you know, we as a company and we as a video team may fall into some of these categories and like deep self-examination, because I think that's part of what everybody has been going through for the last year and a half, rightfully so. And to me, because we were constantly being compared to Bonap, even though I had this understanding of us being a very different publication and business, I saw it as a real moment to say, what, what have we done right? And what have we done wrong? And where can we do better? So awesome. I was an avid, yeah, avid listener and follower of, you know, everything that unfolded. And I created structure for our teams to actually talk about it. Um, so within the video team, we had some pretty, pretty direct and, you know, maybe uncomfortable conversations within the team, gave, gave people space to really talk about their own reactions and takes and process it together. And then bring that to that larger conscious uh, content committee, which was comprised of more editorial leaders across the company, um, you know, the TV and podcast team, the recipe development team, the edit team, all of this work and conversation was happening uh, over the course of the, the last two years, even, even before some of this stuff, you know, came into the more mainstream conversation. And I, I guess I feel a lot of disappointment, um, but also not so much surprise <laughs> to be, uh, uh, you know, hundred percent honest with you yeah. and not surprised yeah. at the bon appetit part <laughs> yeah. or the reply all or both. Uh, the you, where do you feel comfortable saying like, I don't know, yes. <laughs> cause I know you run in these circles. So I don't want you to say anything that could make it uncomfortable for your next lunch date or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ron. I appreciate sure. that. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be, you know, open and transparent about just, yeah. I was disappointed all around. And yeah. um, I, you know, some of the other discourse and reaction was around how this isn't a story about food media. This is a story about corporate America, yeah. right? Yeah. The, the sort of fact that we could all feel and take pieces from this story that hit us and resonated with us personally, mm -hmm. I think, you know, just, just again, highlighted all of the things that we're trying to collectively process. And right. I will say there was definitely moments of just pure exhaustion um, mm -hmm. because I, I also felt like, am I the only person driving these, wanting to have these conversations? And yeah. of course, everybody is receptive. Thankfully, you know, the, the culture there is very open and, um, mm -hmm. very positive and inquisitive. I think that goes back to the DNA of the brand, but mm -hmm. yeah, there, there are certainly moments when you, I think if you've had those experiences as, you know, a, a creative professional of color, it, it just feels different. There's no other way to put it. <laughs> Yeah, totally. I 100% understand what you're saying. It's it's a very intangible thing that I think a lot of people have started articulating better in the in the last year, two years or so. Um, I'm curious specifically if you can say like what you were disappointed by exactly. We'll be back to the show shortly, but first, a word from the people who help keep the lights on. Today's movies and TV shows operate in terabytes. 
So why do most file sharing providers cap data transfers to a couple hundred gigs? Modern filmmaking runs on massive files, and massive files called for massive transfer. Spelled M-A-S-V, Massive is a file sharing solution for those who want to move heavy, uncompressed videos through the cloud without limits. No subscriptions, no complicated IT setups. Massive's pay-as-you-go model is designed to ship big files in record time at 25 cents per gig, and all you need is an internet connection. Sign up for Massive today using massive.io slash AOTF and get 100 gigabytes free towards your transfer. That's M-A-S-S-I-V-E dot I-O slash A-O-T-F as in under the frame for 100 gigabytes of free transfer. Now back to the show. I'm curious specifically if you can say like what you were disappointed by exactly. You know, the fact that they became the story was just like after, you know, so much and to your, to your earlier point, Ron, the the reporting in the podcast itself i thought was phenomenal um yeah it was it, yeah. it was it was really good storytelling and so my disappointment really came from a place of feeling for all of the folks who were involved in bringing those yeah. memories and stories forward mm-hmm. and you know disappointment in perhaps the 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 larger system um shruti talked a lot about her sort of disassociation of being a person of color and mm. i think also when you rise to a visible position or a position of leadership, you're constantly competing with those systems. And, you know, nobody sees that tension behind the scenes and what's going on. And so at the end of the day, I really believe in, again, this, this curiosity and judge, uh, forgiving people more than we judge and trying to look at the stories through those lenses. But Mm -hmm. the fact that it, it couldn't even, a story about the story then became the story and the same patterns were repeating themselves. Like, right. yeah. gosh, what a bummer. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right, right. So, I yeah. mean, what what shifts have you noticed though um, in the business overall, like through the Me Too movement and mm-hmm. also through, um, you know, uh, trying to empower more people of color, especially Asian Americans behind and in front of the screen? I... I do feel like there is a level of conversation and awareness that I have not seen um, in my millennial lifetime. (laughs) And the the sort of willingness, I think, is where it starts. Um, There's certainly going to be a lot of fumbling and mistakes Mm -hmm. and discomfort um, on all sides. But the fact that people are even open to having these conversations is a, it's a thing that I would 10 years ago, you know, just starting out, what, what have you, these are the things that I buried and internalized, right? These are the, it is the reason that I chose to go towards documentary or to, Mm. uh, I gravitated towards production design and said, I probably can't actually be a director anyway, because that's, that, that's being occupied by all these people who I don't have any relation to. Um, So I'll, I'll let them do that. And I'll go do this other thing that I'm, I know I'm really good at and feel safer. So <laughs> all of this now happening and it, it's never going to be enough. Right. And then mm-hmm. again, the internet's such a, an angry place sometimes. And right. I think progress is, is it's moving forward, but it's about that, that practice. Um, and there will be big wins and there'll also be disappointments, but for the most part, the fact that we can even talk about this stuff and their structures and movements and programs. And that to me feels like a really, really important first step. I know yeah. a lot of people have been 
um, very critical about the fact that it's been a year and a half mm-hmm. and perhaps some of the changes that we've talked about have not become fully realized, but mm-hmm. some of the changes that we're talking about are large. Yeah, <laughs> they, They're large and they run deep and they take time like any big project or good or impactful change takes. So that's, yeah. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle there, I think. Yeah. So have you felt those person, those limiting beliefs personally, have you felt them uh, melting away a little bit, you know, like, for example, being a director, like, do you see more possibility now for yourself? Definitely. And, um, yeah. you know, someone who really is important to me and inspires me is my, my younger brother. And he's, um, he's turning 21 next month, my goodness, <laughs> but he's also creative. He's studying animation right now. And, um, mm-hmm. You know, he's, he identifies as queer and the fact that he's just, he's out there telling his stories on social, it, like, it's just amazing to me. And so mm-hmm. I do feel like those parts of my personality that I may have shied away from yeah. leaning into or bringing forward finally have a little mm-hmm. bit more space yeah. to, to breathe. So I'm, yes, I am excited about that. Awesome. Mikim, <laughs> uh, do you ever kind of following up on Sapna's question, do you ever have a, do you ever feel a sense of your Asianness or womanness in your work life? Like, do has it, and not just necessarily your current job, but in your career, like, has it, has either, either been an issue? Has, has either made you feel like you're not part of the crowd, so to speak? Like, have you ever felt mm-hmm. othered in your, you know, being in this industry, you know, it could be very easy for a woman to feel like that. Um, and so I was wondering, being an Asian woman has have either of those been items that made you kind of feel like an other in in your career a bajillion percent (laughs) (laughs) uh again I guess it's sad but not surprising I don't know yeah Yeah. (laughs) um and even to have you know the the courage to say that it's 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 one of those things where you're like well this is the way it is so I guess it's not a thing right Mm -hmm. you just sort of accept these quote unquote realities and, and you yeah. work through them, but they, I've, I've personally done a lot more exploration around my um, Asian American identity in the last few years. And I, I will say that I also was never, I did not feel accepted by my own um, Vietnamese <laughs> heritage. So really? it's like a double othering. Like I never can relate. I can relate. (laughs) Yes. I just, I think this is actually a pretty common shared experience for a lot of, um, first artists and and artists. Yep. Yes. 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 Um, so, you know, there is this sort of nuanced understanding of Asian American being this sort of monolithic thing, but then there's so many differences between our, our cultures and our ethnicities and those expectations. And, part of that, again, that flattening, that monolithic lumping, what happens is that that identity then also plays into, Atlanta was a, a pretty big turning point for me personally as well from a, a public standpoint and talking about these things more openly, but. The show Atlanta? You know, oh, I'm sorry. Um, what happened in Atlanta? Oh, um, right. oh with, the, the, yes. with the with the, yes, the, with the, the mas- Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And I, I mean, I just realized how much of my the choices that I've made throughout my creative career and in my personal life were through this lens of trying to fit through that gaze. Um, you know, mm-hmm. what is whiteness? What is being submissive? As a leader, you finally made it into this role, but you have to make sure everybody feels good and there's consensus right. and everyone's comfortable. And that just 
constant navigation. The safety of others. Yeah. For your own. Yeah. Right? The security <laughs> of others, the comfort of others. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then early in my career, I would say um, my gender played a larger role. Um, I'm also uh, physically kind of petite. So there I was on jobs, you know, working with gear and group, like doing more right, physical right. things. But then it's like, oh, I'm, there's this small woman. Like, what, what is she doing? You know, like, so <laughs> right. there was a lot of that that happened mm. that I think I've internalized and now have a, a much clearer understanding of later in my career. So what ratio of these feelings you had would you say were perhaps uh of your of your own making doesn't is that quite right but were they were your own personal internal feelings because you knew yourself to be different whether or not mm -hmm. someone specifically said or did anything and how much of it were like clear external um forces that you saw happening and you know what you say there's a ratio uh between the two, was that even experience? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think, and this is a maybe a chicken and egg thing, right? Yeah, because yeah, totally. If yeah. if you feel it, then you will it, right? Like, right. Yeah. yeah. But I think about the times in my career when I was sort of, you know, at my most impactful and in flow, and those things would still happen to me, mm -hmm. and that's that's when they would sort of shock me or, or surprise me or affect me the most because all of a sudden this thing that I thought was no longer the leading marker of my experience or identity was, and it was the only thing that people right. saw. So then I recognized that and then had to work twice as hard to show them that I actually knew what I was talking about and yeah. could do the thing that I'm here to do. And yeah, I think yeah. it was mm -hmm. yeah a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, for sure. I, I was just going to say, like, you know, I think one thing that happens for people who are in these marginalized groups is you, you have the sense of not always knowing, like there's this, you know, plausible deniability from the outside party where either certain things happen to you and you just wonder, did that happen because I'm a woman or did that happen because I'm black or did that happen and and because no one overtly comes out and says we're not going to hire you because you're asian or we're not going to promote you because you're a woman like no one will say that but then you get the sense you get this feeling mm -hmm. that maybe you know i remember i was in this one job where that where i was performing extremely well in it and was eventually let go and i really felt like a lot of the reasons were kind of race related in terms of a subconscious thing, not, nothing that was overt. Because I remember like a year earlier, three of us had like complained about a middle management person who was a white man. And this person got moved into an area where he eventually kind of got a promotion. And like three, three of us actually like went to HR and said, we have an issue with this person. He, I would describe it kind of like how the Catholic church moves a priest from one. Oh, God. <laughs> that's what it felt like. And maybe that's, <laughs> that's what it kind of felt like he was moved from one department to another. And he got like less responsibility in terms of management, but it was like a cooler role. And eventually he got promoted. And I feel like a year later for something significantly smaller, I was like, go. And so, but when you're a black man or a woman or a person of Asian descent, you start thinking like, is there some kind of subconscious bias that's at play here? And then we talk to other people who are in similar demographics, having similar stories. It's, it's just that feeling like you just never know. 
Um, and I think, you know, I think that's, that's been my experience. I don't know if you've ever felt like that as well, where it's like maybe something you didn't get or something you didn't go away. You thought, and you just start, and you have that sort of like nagging in the back of your head. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, Sapna, I heard, I saw your eyes light up too. So I'm curious <laughs> to hear your, your experience as well. Um, I think when it happens to you early in your creative career, especially when your other support systems, as I experienced, were also uh, not very strong or not in your corner per se, I, I overcompensated by internalizing it and saying, okay, if that's what they think, or that's what, how it's going to be, then I'm going to fight twice as hard or work twice as hard. And I will just make it a moot point of which of course it's not to, to your point, like that, mm-hmm. that feeling is always there, but I, I sort of took a fight fire with fire approach and mm-hmm. I'm in a different place now where I don't think that that is um, as effective or as healthy anymore. And I don't want to set that example for other, my other creative peers, um, you know, and, and people who are around me. I think that if you feel like something is off and you have the means to, to utilize your voice, mm-hmm. you should use it. Um, and that there should hopefully be people around you who can come to your aid in that conversation. So you're not the only one, you know, shouting from a rooftop or something. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Yeah. Um, my eyes lit up cause I'm very animated and I was just, I was, I was just hearing, uh, Ron describe like this bilateral move, you know, that then turned into a promotion and it's just relating. I've, I've been there. I can see that. Um, and also just, you know, I think you've talked about this a bit, but you know, it's, you were, it's as if you were feeling like your authority was generally challenged, you know, like in, in certain situations. Um, but I'm just curious if you'd actually been outright bullied um, and have you also been sexualized for being an Asian woman in certain situations that it's totally not appropriate? Yeah, the the answer is yes to, to both <laughs> questions. Um, uh, I'll start with the the outright bullying. And I think that interestingly enough, because we've all been forced together into this space um, in a square box on Zoom, it was somewhat helpful because other people could see it for the first yeah. time. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so that, mm-hmm. that was a difference for me this year. And it, it did start mm. to become this like, hmm, it's not just me. And my other colleagues in different situations um, who share experiences, other colleagues of color as well, they also, again, kind of became that support system to say, I don't think you're crazy. <laughs> like these, yeah. these, these things are happening. And it's also awkward because in a Zoom box, it's harder to then maybe um, be a good ally or stand up in the moment. And then again, my, my personal leadership style is to default to, I'll take it, I'll absorb it, I'll figure it out you know, let's, let's consensus build and just move forward. And that certainly took, took a toll on me, um, you know, as, as the months went on. And then to the second part of your question, again, I think I, I also gravitated towards, you know, Fincher and these sort of more um, ultra masculine interests and activities. And I, I would, say that I'm a self-proclaimed tomboy in, in a lot of ways. So same, same. <laughs> um, again, I leaned very heavily into that to keep myself safe from that, um, you know, inevitable over, over sexualization that happened, you know, in creative situations in professional situations and personal situations. And my, my level of awareness and relationship to it now is 
much more fine-tuned than it was even, you know, a year ago. So I'm really grateful for that because again, I feel like if I can recognize it and have that level of awareness around it, it's something that I can actually, you know, deal with or manage, or I'm not sure if that's the right word, but it feels less scary than it used to in some ways, even though it still persists. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, we really appreciate that. I think it's, I think it's really interesting and important to hear really successful women talk about these experiences as also having been part of them reaching where they are now. Um, but we can move on to something a little more positive, like maybe what's the most <laughs> fulfilling aspect of content creation for you? Yeah. Um, again, if you, if you told my age, my brother, my age, me, you know, that this, this would be possible would have probably left, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> to total disbelief. So one of the things that I really, really enjoy about making content in our current landscape is showing people what's possible and whether or not you are a, a video producer who's now getting closer to understanding how, you know, data and analytics affects the content that you make, or the example we talked about earlier, someone who is interested in making different types of content on platforms that they've never experienced before. Mm -hmm. All of that creative possibility is the thing that makes me super, super excited. I, I truly feel like because I live in this sort of left brain, right brain world, I can help bridge those gaps and help other creative people see, here's what you can do. Here's what's possible. Here's how you can reach your potential. So that, that to me is like the thing that keeps me going, honestly. Is there any story um, in particular for narrative um, that you're aching to tell? Is there a story that's either your own or somebody else's? Oh, good question. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I really, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure dad will have some mixed reactions when I say this, but I, <laughs> I am dying to make um, some kind of film or, you know, series about my dad and his just very uh, unique intersection. <laughs> um <laughs> He's, I have so much respect and admiration for him, um, but we've also had some really hard times. And mm. so again, as I've gotten older and, you know, also understanding this concept of um, a, a sojourner and, you know, someone who came here not to settle here, but always with the intention to go back or mm. to, to find home again. And I don't think that was something that really clicked with me until later in my life, because all of a sudden it helped me understand that, A, I also believe all par parents fundamentally love their children, um, e even if, you know, it doesn't always manifest or feel like that. And how would you feel if you were away from your home for, you know, 30 plus years trying to raise, there's just so many things. I have a lot of um, respect and admiration and empathy for him, but at the same time, he has some very interesting habits and stories. So <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like um, between his um, his personality on the construction site to how he's uh, run his, his Airbnb operation, <laughs> um, there's a lot to explore with my dad. So someday. <laughs> does, he own just, does he own a number of Airbnb properties or just like one? Just, he had just one. Mm. Um, and now <laughs> this is probably going way, way too deep. And now he's just going straight Craigslist. And oh, so okay. you can imagine. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's again, just super industrial and entrepreneurial and just, yeah, heart of gold. Yeah, no, it's funny because <laughs> um, I use Airbnb a lot. Uh, for two and a half years, I traveled 
and we use Airbnb almost exclusively. I mean, every now and then we'd stay at a hotel, but you know, we'd spend half the half the year in Europe, and then three months in Canada, and the other three months throughout the U.S. and and even you know during the during the pandemic, I continued living like that. When I moved to, I recently moved to LA, back to LA last year, and um, I now now I'm renting. But I was for the first year or so because it's great. Because people would ask, Ron, how can you guys afford to travel throughout Europe and do all this traveling? And we were actually paying less per month for everything than we were when we were renting like a house in the Seattle area because. Mm-hmm. Because when you rent Airbnb, utilities and garbage and Wi-Fi, like all that's included. So, right. you know, if you're paying two thousand a month at Airbnbs, that's uh, includes your utilities and your Wi-Fi and, and that kind of thing. Um, you know, as we as we get close to the end, I'd be remiss not to ask. You know, you're you're managing this large digital video network with America's Test Kitchen, millions of views, millions of subscribers. How, how, how do you do it all, Mikam? Like, what's, what's your secret? Like, are there particular tools that you use organizational-wise that kind of help you? Um, are you, do you, are you interact? I assume you're interacting with various creative teams. From, from, a, from a practical standpoint, how are you, logistically, how are you managing all those projects? Yeah, Again, having that very clear understanding of what we're doing and why and what resources are available to us, it it always starts there for me. And then having uh, also a clear understanding of the shifts that may occur, which is what we talked about earlier. So even though we said, you know, pick a couple platforms and go deep on them, you also need to be prepared for them to change their algorithms, for them to be merged or absorbed for the next new thing to come. Mm. So leaving space for prototyping, experimentation, which is something I certainly picked up over, you know, years of being in that the tech space, mm-hmm. which I think is a much newer concept for more traditional film. You, you sort of see it a little bit with social content and marketing, but the actual films and longer form content themselves are not really creating space for that, so to speak. So as long as I have that up up at the top and then my team, right? I can't speak highly enough about my director of video, all of our producers, our post-production manager, our line producer, that communication and that connection. And again, the understanding of what we're doing and why that's what keeps it all going um, and allows us to be flexible when things come up and we have to change and adapt it's definitely a grind. Um, I definitely realize, like you know, we're we're at a different point now, and that's kind of what I meant about video 2.0, because mm-hmm. um, it took you know about three three years to get to this point where we are now. Um, right. So I think prioritization, um, which is something I know product managers talk a lot about, but every choice has a you know an upside and a downside, and so understanding that before you make that choice, I think, is really key. And having that constant communication, like with your support team and with your, you know, stakeholders and senior leadership, making sure that even though there's a lot going on, all of that communication is clearly upheld and updated so that nothing, you know, slips through the cracks when you have 20 plus projects going on at once. Do you have a favorite project management software or platform that you use? Or do you use a bunch of them? Yeah, you know, we're, um, the company itself is just Google Docs. Mm -hmm. um, And again, a lot of a lot of hands-on collaboration. Mm-hmm. 
I like Google Docs. Everyone's all about all these fancy systems, which are great, but I like Google Docs. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody keeps talking about um, Notion, which I've dabbled in a, a little bit more recently. But honestly, for me personally, I've notebook, pen and paper. I write. Mm. I've got yeah. just like. Speaking of seven, I have like bookshelves <laughs> full of you know <laughs> sketch sketchbooks and project books over the years. So that will always be my number one project management system. Do what we need you- to be worried about a head in the box I after know. this? Like- well, it's funny you said that. I was asking. <laughs> What did you think of the choice the Brad um, Pitt character made at the end? Um, if you because you know, spoiler alert for a you know twenty plus year old <laughs> movie. But uh, so obviously he sees his wife's head, and he shoots the Kevin Spacey character. I'm sure some people will probably like that now, but um, he shoots the Kevin Spacey character, which is the Kevin Spacey character wants him to do that. And I, I remember distinctly remember as I was watching the movie at the time, hoping that the Morgan Freeman character would shoot him for him because he was Mm. near retiring anyway. And the Brad Pitt was kind of new in his career. And now by shooting this guy, he was going to be probably throwing it away. And I kind of always hoped that Morgan Freeman would like stop him and then shoot it for him. Did you have any thoughts about that? About his choice to give in to his anger and kill the um kevin's character i mean in thinking about you know the the seven deadly sins and Mm -hmm. sort of the the theme of human nature and it Mm -hmm. it even makes me think about you know the sort of story patterns that we repeat and yeah hero's journey and all of that it it felt inevitable Mm -hmm. to me (laughs) um if i think about him as a person his character in that moment i also feel like he was so overwhelmed with grief i can't even imagine yeah you know at that point he may or may not have been feeling like it doesn't what what life do i have to live at this point anyway so let me lean into you know my human nature and fulfill the prophecy of wrath and yeah just complete the cycle yeah no good answer um that's a great answer yeah (laughs) i so i i typically end with speed round questions mm. before i do that i want to stop there. were there any questions you want to ask before i ask her my speed round questions i just wanted to say i love the handmade film that you have on your website um oh thank you and and the quote you said about it just the power and intimacy of vertical frame like i never would have thought of it that way and it was really fascinating a lot of your videos there are just really compelling um yeah 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 <laughs> Yeah. From your from the days you were at Facebook and you were doing Facebook curated and doing vertical vertical work. Do you mm-hmm. so a lot of filmmakers have like they have like they get you can almost feel like this visceral discomfort they have when they when they see someone shooting vertically. And um uh, I'm getting better at being <laughs> calm about it. Every now and then every now and then I'll see somebody out shooting vertically and I want to slap them and, and turn <laughs> and turn their iPhone around but I know there's a place for it for you did you ever have that kind of visceral reaction probably not because you created vertical content but your thoughts <laughs> your, your thoughts on the whole vertical versus horizontal shooting yeah I I'm always happy to to geek out about this and talk about Please. it right because, so you know a lot of the work that I was doing on the team there was to get at this exact question. Yeah. Um, 
And and to me, I almost see a parallel in digital versus film, right? And mm-hmm. you see how the iPhone is now being considered a serious filmmaking tool. And of course, mm-hmm. Apple has done a lot to partner with big name filmmakers to mm-hmm. push that forward. It's about the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I am I'm not of the mind that vertical is better than horizontal or vice versa. I really do believe that you have to understand the container in which your content is ultimately going to be consumed. And I know there's also a lot of folks, you know, who are making big narrative features. We saw this through COVID. How can you reduce it to a home television screen? You know, you're losing all of this. What does your audience, you know, like mm-hmm. there's, there's that, that niche, there's the people who understand the craft. And then there's the audience that you're, you know, trying to, to get, get after, um, to me, vertical filmmaking has come such a long way. Um, mm-hmm. I've seen people do really innovative things in the space, really beautiful cinematic things. But I don't think it's it's one versus the other. I think it's mm-hmm. very much about the story you're trying to tell. And within hand, the Handmade series, um, that one of the most intimate things about vertical to me is the fact that it is in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of profile, that genre of like profile videography sometimes focuses very much on like sweeping and portrait. And I was just interested in like, what is the tightest possible space I can fit into to tell this story? So that's what I really think it's about. And I think playing with format, which is a lot of what we did in prototyping beyond just, oh, I have this 16 by nine and now I'm going to chop it up to make it fit into this box. What what can you do knowing that this is a poster Mm -hmm. and that it's not a new aspect ratio, but it's a much more pervasive one now. So mm-hmm. I think it's about understanding that creative container and then choosing your your tools and your weapons appropriately. What what was your um, opinion for how Quibi handled their vertical um, content? I feel like it was a missed opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. they, they sort of experimented. There was a couple different shows where they embraced the turnstile technology mm-hmm. and you would literally get a different experience depending yes. on which way you held the screen. Right. I wanted more of that. Mm-hmm. I was so excited about it. And then, you know, a lot of what I saw from the content that I was watching was pretty much just pan and scan. Mm-hmm. And they were just, you know, there was nothing. Right. They were just making it fit. There wasn't actually anything yes. native about it as opposed to someone like, I think what was uh, Damien Chazelle did a campaign with um, iPhone mm-hmm. called Vertical Cinema that was you know informed by a lot of these principles. And if if the audience or you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend checking that out because it is well, absolutely gorgeous and a, an homage to cinema, if you will, homage, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think like your whole answer, and it kind of goes back to the conversation we had earlier about the digital platforms, like creating content that is is really suited for the platform and suited for the audience and whether you're shooting vertically or horizontally you know really creating content that that is suited for that i think is um and i can totally see someone like damien chazelle being the kind of auteur who would make sure that if he was going to create something vertically making it fit right yeah, it's beautiful. And there's also I, the one that you won an award for, the the world's most boring films. Um, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that was so well done. And then, I, yeah, that's congratulations on that. That's super cool. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just being able to tell the story, only being able to told and being able to be told in that format, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. So that's really, really well, well usage of that format. <laughs> A, a quick behind the scenes on that project, yeah. it 
it was based on an insight, right? Like the, the, the mattress brand purple. I have a purple Mm -hmm. mattress now, not because of that campaign. I I swear. (laughs) Um, they, they were like, what are people doing late at night on Facebook and Instagram? They're staying up, they're scrolling, they can't Mm -hmm. sleep. So again, that's kind of what I mean when I say like, what is happening on the platform? What are the product features available to us? And at that time, Facebook was pushing live and long form, Mm. you know, they were really, really invested in making that work. So that's using that as the genesis of the idea helped us to then break out into all these different iterations of, oh, I know what would make someone fall asleep. Something extremely, extremely boring. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. I want to jump to my speed round questions for you. Uh, first one is a guilty pleasure TV or movie that you watch. Uh, 90 day fiance. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Is that a TV show? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's why they call it guilty pleasures. Yeah. No, no judgment. Um, You'll see a reality show. Yes. The last thing that you saw TV or movie that surprised you and why? Um, Love Lovecraft Country, hands down. I have mm. not been able to stop thinking about that show ever well, since. What about yeah. it? I mean, what what an impactful, thoughtful, thorough, intricate masterpiece. I mean, if if audience hasn't seen the show, I I could not recommend it more. Also, listening to the podcast Companion, mm-hmm. um, and then there's a a group called the Langston League who put together a learning curriculum that goes with each episode that goes deep into all of the references um, that are explored in the show. I, I just have never seen anything like it. I've never seen characters centered in that way with that amount of complexity and depth while also interweaving really important issues and history through a creative lens. Like the show is itself beautiful. Um, yeah, that that's probably like top three of all time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then if you could collaborate on a film, a feature film with anyone, who would it be and why? Fincher. <laughs> That's what I thought. I don't want to get. I... Probably for all the reasons you said earlier, or is there anything yeah. you want to add? You know, I, I would also argue that Fincher is the reason streaming is what it is today. Hmm. If you think all the way back to House of Cards, right? And Netflix sort of original flagship programming that was luring folks in. And now what he's doing with, you know, Tim Miller and Blur and animation and his commercial work, Love, Death and Robots. I, I just feel like he is a type of person who is constantly pushing, constantly. So to be able to be around that energy and learn from someone like him, that, that would be dreamy. <laughs> All right, David, if you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Respect. That's right, that's right. Well, Mikan, this has been amazing. I could definitely... I'm going to have you back probably at some point in the future or whatever, because this this was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you both. I really, really appreciate your time. (laughs) That was fun. That was a great, that was a great conversation. It's funny. It didn't go, it didn't go at all what I expected. I don't mean that in a good way or a bad way. Yeah, um, but like I think one of the things I really liked about it is, is because I was like pleasantly surprised because I hadn't talked to her. I've never talked to her before. You know, I was listening to some of her interviews, or at least one of her interviews on another podcast to get an idea of 
some of the things I might want to ask, but I really liked uh, like the things that she had to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's one of those people who feel like you could just keep talking. You're like, she's so articulate too. Yeah, like yeah. the way she she um, makes information really accessible. Like mm-hmm. she's very well spoken. So yeah. yeah, it just made the follow up questions even that much easier because it was like, oh, I like what you said there. What about this? You know. So yeah, yeah. Being a being of Indian descent, were you relating to a lot of the immigrant related stories that she was talking about? And did you have those experiences yourself? Yeah, I mean, I related to everything she said, except for anything that was super tech specific that I just didn't know about, you know, everything else. I was like, yes, and yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it's super interesting. I was going to ask her, but then we were sort of laboring on that subject for a little Mm -hmm. too long. But I almost asked her, have you ever felt yourself um, it was when she was talking about uh, um, having to work twice as hard because that's just something I grew up with. Like I just mm-hmm. heard that all the time from my dad. Yeah. He's like, you know, you don't only have to work twice as hard. You have to work four times as hard. You're a woman and you're a person of color. Right. And it's like, and you know, it. unfortunately what it did for me is it just made my perfectionism that much worse because (laughs) as I've been told, I don't know how to do a rough draft. You know, I don't want to share any of that until it's like in its perfection. And so for me, that's the challenge, right? Is that somewhere that got, that got pushed in my mind. I don't, because I think the quality of my work and the caliber of my work is so high. I just, Mm -hmm. I have a hard time like letting go of it until it's at some semblance of where I like it. But what I was going to ask her is has she found herself having to prove how American she is in time? Oh, Angela, you know? that would have been a good question. I know, but we were we were going no, on that for sure. a while, and that's why I was like, we needed to move on to the rest of things because I know that there's these moments that I've definitely felt um, like I had to drop in, you know, a reference, whether it be TV or music or something, so that people are like, oh my god, I had that experience too, and like you had that experience. Oh, you're just as American as me, you know, because. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a weird way of like having to prove you're just as American, you know, it's, it's strange, but I have found myself doing that a lot more when I was younger than I do it now, because now I also see like, um, my, my assimilation is complete, (laughs) you know, do you know Uh what I mean? It's like, it's like that kind of a feeling, you know, it's like, oh, you know, like, right how much do i want to lean into that really you know mm-hmm. because it's that concept as well right so when you, when i was young and people would say like oh i don't even think of you as indian i just think of you as you know like Sapna, my my other my friend you know right and i'm like oh that's so cool but really what they were saying is you have assimilated so well i don't notice that you're indian yeah you know yeah. like that's really what's being said yeah right it's like when people say that they're colorblind yes and they think right. it's like I understand the sentiment, like they're trying mm-hmm. to say they're not going to mm-hmm. negatively judge you just based on the color of your skin. Right. But like what, and I'm sure you probably had this experience too. Like uh-huh. one thing like you want to communicate to those people is one, well, I recently wrote about this when you're not colorblind because Mm-mm. you're making choices, even subconsciously, they're based on media you've seen for decades, your entire life mm-hmm. that inform how you respond to this person of color, whatever race they are. But there's also some beautiful aspects of another person's color or culture that is totally fine to acknowledge. Like, 
you know, being colorblind doesn't have to be mutually exclusive to judging a person on the content of the character. Like you can do both. Like there's mm-hmm. space for both. And I think in the media world, it is kind of hard because, you know, there is that assimilation thing that you talked about where mm-hmm. you want to feel like you're fully American, but you also <laughs> want to be, you want to respect your roots. You're, yeah. you want know, to be Indian. And see and a think, person in their totality. Like I can very much be both and, and also be neither, you know? Right. Like, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. Definitely. Well, this is going to be a good, um, definitely a good episode and a good exercise. Um, before we go, tell the people where they can find out more about what you're you're doing, Sipna. Oh, okay. We make so, movies and with yeah. Um, so uh, I am part of a film collective slash production company slash now marketing and branding agency uh, for filmmakers um, that. Uh, is doing amazing things for communities, for for indie communities. And uh, we've actually grown, we're national now, and we're actually even expanding internationally in, in certain ways in the philanthropic work we do. Um, we're called We Make Movies, by the way, it's wemakemovies.org. Uh, and right now, actually, we're doing something really interesting. We're basically trying to uh, create an investment model for film financing Mm. through a competition we're doing it's called make your feature competition and we are giving uh we've teamed up with some silicon valley investors and we are uh giving twenty five thousand dollars to each winning filmmaker we're going to fund at least two uh possibly more uh filmmakers who are uh doing innovative authentic work that's what we're looking for um that could mean any genre that could mean uh anything it's just we're looking for really powerful storytelling and we make movies will produce the film from a to z we will do the pre-production the production post-production marketing and even help with distribution alongside uh premiering the film at our we make movies international film festival nice nice yeah cool yeah well i definitely have links to it Oh. Now, is there a deadline for submission? Yes, it's August 5th. Right, um, I think this will be out before then. Yeah, August 5th is the deadline. Um, and the link to check everything out is wemakemovies.org slash competition. Cool, cool. And you have to be a member to join, but it's not um, it's not very much at all. And it's yeah. it's the price of the membership is worth everything. And yeah, we have for got, sure. Yeah, so. yeah, well, I haven't worked with you guys closely. I can't I can vouch. Yeah. I'll vouch for you. Thank you. Crossing the 180 is a production of Blade Rider Media and part of Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Frame podcast series. This episode was produced, written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, Ron Dawson. Huge thanks to my co-host, Sapna Gandhi. Links to hers and Mecham's info can be found in the show notes or the blog post for this episode at ProVideoCoalition.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Blade Runner, that's Runner with a O, and you can also follow me on Instagram at Blade Runner. You can follow Pro Video Coalition on Twitter at twitter.com slash provideo. Uh, don't bother following me on TikTok. I have like three followers and I'm not really doing anything there. But one day, one day. Until next time, remember if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Be careful out there, folks. See you next time.